Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Luke chapter 24. I'm going to read verses 13 through 16 and then jump down and read verses 25 through 27, but we will be addressing the other verses in the sermon today. Hear now God's Word. Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so they did not know him. Then verse 25. Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... He expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Last time we looked at the women who went to the tomb to uh, bring spices and oils to uh, show respect to the body of Jesus. And of course they found the stone rolled away and the tomb empty and the angels told them that Jesus had risen from the dead. And then, of course, he, they immediately went and reported that to the disciples, and uh, Peter and others ran to the tomb and also discovered the body missing. So later that same day, uh, we take up the story. These disciples are on their way home, having witnessed the burial and crucifixion of their friend and leader. And so just take a, a moment to visualize that. Right after the crucifixion, Uh, So they're leaving an execution and a funeral. During the first part of this walk, the men are visibly depressed, not realizing that Jesus has been resurrected, these these that are here on the road. They don't know this. This is what they've got as the backdrop. They fully believe he has died. They don't understand, though, that he has risen, nor do they fully even comprehend who he is. This is a sad and frightening walk. If you've been following Jesus and now he's gone, if you've been expecting that he was going to be the one that was going to make everything right and now he's gone and you've been attached to this movement and they're, and they're crucifying, uh, they've crucified your leader, you may very well be next. And so they're probably anticipating an imminent arrest. So it was, verse 15, while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. It's possible to see Jesus and not see Jesus. They're talking and reasoning, trying to make sense out of what's happened. Again, you can imagine that they're overwhelmed and in the midst of their confusion and shock, Jesus draws near. It wasn't simply that they couldn't recognize Jesus. This is really a strange feature of the resurrection stories in Matthew and John as well. It's apparent that Jesus' body has emerged from the tomb and it's transformed in some way. It was the same and yet different. A mystery which we likely won't understand until we share the same risen life. But the fact that they couldn't recognize Jesus at first 
seems to go with the fact that they also couldn't recognize the events that just happened as the story of God's redemption. Perhaps Luke is saying that we can only know Jesus, we can only recognize him in any sense when we learn to see him within the context of the true story of God, Israel, and the world. Verse 17, and he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? By the way, some of you know this, but we don't know who the other, we have Cleopas here. We're not sure who the other person was, but it may very well have been his wife. Uh, They uh, are together in another place in the scriptures. And so uh, we're not sure who the other disciple is here. But he, Jesus now showed up and he says, what are you talking about? What's going on? Tell, tell me the situation. In other words, Jesus is asking them um, why they're so upset. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and have you not known the things which happened there in these days? So I thought, where have you been? You, don't, you hadn't seen what's been going on for the last several days around here? It was a big deal. This wasn't some little isolated event on the side. Remember, we had the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You had the scene in the temple where Jesus throws the tables over. We have all kinds of, we have the arrest of Jesus. You have big crowds of people that have been following Jesus. Everybody knew about this. Except Jesus is now asking them, what are you talking about? And so... Uh, Not only was this the trial of the century, there had been the miracles, the crowds, the sermons. Jesus was not crucified as an obscure man. Obscure men are no threat to Rome and the religious establishment. Verse 19, and he said to them, what things? So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. So both the civil and the religious powers had delivered Jesus to death and crucifixion. And I'll remind you, you know, that's the story of what's happened here. The one true man, Jesus Christ, the perfect man is sent into the world, and the world, both what we'd call kind of the secular world and the religious world, sat in judgment of him and said, here's what we do with perfect men. We torture them and we kill them. We get rid of them. They're not welcomed in this world. So the chief priests inadvertently deliver the Lamb of God up to death. Isn't that ironic? Like Joseph's brothers, they intended it for evil, but God intended it for good in order to preserve many people alive. Moreover, it is important to see that the Romans used crucifixion as the ultimate display of power over men and nations, a means of terrorism to control the population. The public display of a badly beaten person hanging on a cross was cruel, it was humiliating, and it was intimidating to anybody else who gave any thought to joining him. They crucified, the crucified person was rendered powerless, or so they thought. The resurrection is the surprising declaration of a new ultimate power 
a new world order. Jesus basically says, watch this. And he will return in 70 A.D. to destroy Jerusalem and the old Jewish order, followed very shortly by the fall of Rome. Verse 21. But we were hoping that it was he. Remember this, this is Cleopas talking. We were hoping that it was Jesus who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Notice the verb tense used throughout verses 19 through 22. They're all in the past tense. These men were hoping that Jesus would deliver Israel from both their spiritual and their political woes. They had regarded Jesus as a prophet and more than a prophet. God's power had been present with him in the miracles and his teaching and they couldn't uh, and they couldn't doubt that this was the man of God's choice because up to that point before the crucifixion the evidence was overwhelming they were utterly convinced that that's who he was and what he was going to do he was the one who would redeem Israel save Israel rescue Israel clearly for them this referred as Luke has been saying all along to this to the new exodus Just as Israel had been redeemed from slavery in Egypt at the first Passover, so they had hoped now that Israel would be redeemed again. They hoped that Israel would be liberated once and from all from pagan domination, free to serve God in peace. That, among other personal things, is why the crucifixion of Jesus was so devastating. The guy who you thought was going to do it all is dead. It wasn't just that Jesus had been the bearer of their hopes and that he was now dead and gone. It was more than that. If Jesus had been the one uh, to redeem Israel, he should have been defeating the pagans, not dying at their hands. Verse 22, yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women women had said, uh, but him they did not see. The word of the women's experience then had already circulated among the network of disciples. These disciples don't know what to make of these reports. Some discounted them as unbelievable, yet some, and I notice here in this part of the text, it says they had some kind of a vision about angels. It must have been imagining things, right? They had seen uh, Jesus, ra- they had seen Jesus raise other people from the dead. Verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is a really powerful passage and really what I want to focus on here. The followers understood and believed some of what the prophets had said about Jesus, but not all of it. They didn't understand all of it. They didn't know all of it. They didn't understand those prophecies about the death and resurrection of the Messiah. 
They didn't understand the prophecies concerning the type of Redeemer that Christ would be. Christ began to explain these things beginning from Moses, first five books of the Old Testament, beginning with Moses and working his way forward to the present. Luther wrote this. He says, there are some who have little regard for the Old Testament. They think, it is of a, they think of it as a book that was written to the Jewish people only and is now out of date, containing only stories of past times. But Christ says in John 5, Search the Scriptures, for it is they that bear witness to me. The Scriptures of the Old Testament are not to be despised, but diligently read. Therefore, dismiss your own opinions and feelings and think of the Scriptures as the loftiest and noblest of holy things as the richest of minds which can never be sufficiently explored in order that you may find that divine wisdom which God here lays before you in such simple guise as to quench all pride. Here you will find the swaddling clothes and the manger in which Christ lies. Simple and lowly are these swaddling clothes. He's referring to the Old Testament. But dear is the treasure Christ who lies in them. The manger in which Christ lies is the striking image of the sort that Luther liked to use. He's imitating scripture, as it were. He is reading the Lukean birth story figuratively, figuratively, excuse me, exploring the manger as a metaphor for the manner in which the Old Testament contains Christ. Just as Jesus is wrapped in humble swaddling clothes in the manger, so too is he wrapped in swaddling clothes, the clothes of the law and the prophets and the writings of the Old Testament. Jesus teaches his disciples now how to read the Bible figuratively. That is, scripture is fulfilled, as scripture is fulfilled, we're able to go back and see more and more of what we didn't see before. Only if we embrace this kind of interpretation can we make sense of the gospel's assertion that the scriptures bear witness to Jesus Christ. So the following insights were gleaned from a book I've been reading by Richard Hayes, a a book I recommend called Reading Backwards. He says this, Jesus is the treasure who lies figuratively wrapped in the folds of the Old Testament. But if he is wrapped, that suggests he's not only contained, but also partially concealed within the manger of the Old Testament. It is the task of a figural reading first to enter the humble surroundings of the stable, as did the shepherds in Bethlehem, but then also to search the scriptures, to read backwards, to unwind the swaddling clothes, and to disclose the Christ who lies there. Because the two poles of a figure, and this this is going to help explain what we're talking about here, the two extremes, the two poles of a figure are events within the flowing stream of time. So what we have is we have an event in the Old Testament that happened in history, and then now we have an event over here, and these two are connected. Though at the time that the first event happened, we didn't know that. We didn't recognize that, but God did. God inspired the scriptures. And so now that this second event has happened, Jesus is going to say, let me go back and show you what was going on there. 
So when there are prophecies, for example, to David regarding his son Solomon, a king to sit on his throne, it turns out those are also talking about Christ, who is also a son of David, who is an eternal king. The things that were said about Solomon were true. The things that were said about Christ fulfill that in an even greater way. So part of what this does is it affirms the divine origin of the Bible in a very powerful way. Because this isn't like one or two things. Remember what Jesus says here? I'm going to show you how all of the scriptures were talking about me. Now, he's not, he doesn't do that in this spot, but he begins to do that with his disciples. So again, uh, the correspondence can be discerned only after the second event has occurred and imparted a new pattern of significance to the first. But once the pattern of correspondence has been grasped, the semantic force of the figure flows both ways as the second event receives deeper significance from the first. You got that? So now this new thing has happened. Well, now we go back and see it in the old, and now that event takes on more significance because now we see the connection. Um, one writer describes figural interpretation this way, or uh, defines it, establishes a connection between two events or persons in such a way that the first signifies not only itself, but also the second. While the second involves or fulfills the first. The two poles of a figure are separated in time, but both, being real events or persons, are within temporality, that is, in history. They are both contained in the flowing stream, which is historical life, and only the comprehension of their independence is a spiritual interdependence is a spiritual act. God is going to reveal how these are connected. And so there is consequently a significant difference between prediction and prefiguration. Figural reading need not presume that the Old Testament authors, for example, or the characters that they're talking about were conscious of predicting or anticipating Christ. They didn't necessarily know as things are unfolding in their lives what this was doing. Did Joseph know what God was doing in his story while, the, while it's happening? We have the advantage of reading the whole story and getting to the end. And then Joseph does realize you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. But he didn't know that when he was in prison. He didn't know that when he was being falsely accused in Potiphar's house. And all of that, the story of Joseph, is a figure of Christ. Joseph is a figure of Christ. It was, that story is about Christ, who is a Savior, who preserved many alive, even though others intended to do him evil. 1 Peter 3, 10 and 12. 10-12. As Peter's talking about salvation, he says, Of this salvation, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied... Remember, Old Testament prophets of the grace that would come to you. Who? What we call New Testament Christians. Searching what or what manner of time. Now listen to this. Old Testament prophets, they were searching what or what manner of time. The spirit of Christ who was in them, 
was indicating when he, Christ, testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The Old Testament prophets knew something was up. They knew they were talking about Christ. They didn't always understand specifically. And so they were searching. They were praying. Lord, help me understand this. Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. Moses and Abraham, remember, God says to Moses, I'm going to give a greater prophet than you. Moses and Abraham were Christians. They believed in Christ. They looked to Christ. They looked ahead. We look back. But all of this is God's unfolding story. Back to 1 Peter 3.10. To them, to the Old Testament prophets, it was revealed not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have appeared, which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The angels are watching this unfold, and this is amazing to them too. The claim that the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection took place according to the Scriptures stands at the heart of the New Testament message. All four Gospels declare the Law and the Prophets and the Psalms mysteriously prefigure Christ. Thus Jesus says to the disciples in verse 27, and beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. As Hayes puts it, we learn to read the Old Testament by reading backwards from the Gospels, and at the same time we learn how to read the Gospels by reading forwards from the Old Testament. In this story, Luke highlights Jesus' role as exegete of the biblical story. The risen Lord becomes the definitive interpreter of the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus are well acquainted with all the stories and traditions about Jesus' life including the report of the empty tomb and the angelic proclamation of his resurrection, but they are nonetheless departing Jerusalem in a state of gloomy disappointment, they said, because we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Do you see the irony? Jesus, the Redeemer of Israel, stands before them, and yet they fail to recognize him. So Jesus scolds them for their failure to believe the prophets, Interestingly, interestingly, not he doesn't condemn them or, or scold them for a failure to believe Jesus' own predictions of his death and resurrection. He, he begins to instruct them all over again and beginning at Moses. And Jesus says he's to be found in all the scriptures, not just a few isolated proof texts. The whole story of Israel builds in its narrative climax In Jesus. That's what Jesus tries to teach them on the road. And so it is essential. By the way, where else do we see this kind of thing? Remember the story of rich man and Lazarus? The rich man tells, ask Abraham, please send somebody from the dead to warn my brothers not to come here. And what is, what does Abraham tell him? If they don't, they have Moses and the prophets. And if they don't believe them, they won't believe somebody who rises from the dead. 
Luke's brief summary is offered in verse 26. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Somehow Jesus' exposition of Israel's scripture will have to undertake the task of reading backwards. It will have to show retrospectively the pervasive presence of his theme, of this theme, which had never been perceived by anyone in Israel prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection. The moment of recognition comes, it's interesting, really powerful. Jesus is talking, he's explaining, he's been doing that before he died. They still hadn't gotten it. He's walking with them. They still don't recognize him. When does that happen? Verses 30 and 32. The moment of recognition comes only as they sit at the table and Jesus breaks bread with them. It's really powerful. That's what we're about to do. The point is... It's too significant for understanding how the Gospels teach us to read the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, excuse me, the point is also significant for that. But we come to understand Scripture only as we participate in the shared life of the community enacted in meals and shared tables. The disciples' faculties of perception are opened by God in such a way that they now not only recognize Jesus, but also recognize the scriptures to have been opened by Jesus' readings. The same word appears once more in the following account of Jesus' teaching of the disciples in Jerusalem in verse 45, which we'll look at later. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It's in the life of Jesus. It's in the relationship with Jesus. It's in the vital connection to Jesus, not some just academic perception of Bible study. Luke's sketchy summary is tantalizing, for it does not explain exactly how all the scriptures might be read as testimony to Jesus. The effect of this episode is to bring us up short and to send us back to the beginning of the gospel to reread it in hopes of discern more clearly the identity and mission of Jesus might have been prefigured in Israel's scripture, and such a reading will, of course, require a rereading of the Old Testament, probably more than once. The second reading of the gospel and scripture together will be retrospective, reading it in light of the resurrection. We will be reading backwards, seeking to find previously hidden Figural correspondence between Moses and the prophets and the mysterious stranger who now chastises the slow of heart for failing to discover the correspondence on the first reading. We conclude these reflections on the identity of Jesus in Luke's gospel then by returning to Cleopas and his companion on the road to Emmaus. Remember, we had hoped They said dejectedly that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We have seen that their hope, however uninformed, was not wrong. He is the redeemer of Israel. The brilliant, dramatic irony of Luke's Emmaus road scene nudges readers inexorably toward a subtle but overwhelming conclusion. The two disciples are wrong to be discouraged, but right 
to have hoped for Jesus to be the one who would redeem Israel. In their puzzled disappointment, they truly named Jesus' identity without realizing what they're saying. For the Redeemer of Israel is none other than Israel's God. And Jesus, in truth, is the embodied, unrecognized, but scripturally attested presence of the one for whom they unwittingly hoped. We get the sense now that their gloom is starting to turn to hope. And so they, verse 29, urged him strongly to stay with them for the night. They are hungry. (laughs) Wait a minute. Don't go. This man is incredible. His insight into the scriptures intrigues the disciples. And so this incident dramatically illustrates how important the Old Testament is for Christians and how important it is to understand the Old Testament figuratively. And so the two disciples know the entire story of Jesus, his miraculous life, his crucifixion, even his resurrection, but they know nothing until they see that these events form the climax of the story of the Old Testament. We shouldn't be surprised that many modern Christians with their enormous ignorance of the Old Testament are as, as confused as these two disciples we must see Jesus' rebuke is also addressed to us. O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Seeing Christ in the Old Testament indeed is the focus of the entire Old Testament, is essential to our well-being of the church because it is essential if we're to know Jesus. But before we could begin to understand what's just happened, they had to be prepared. Like everyone else in Israel, they had been reading the Bible through the wrong end of the telescope. They had been seeing it as a long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering, but it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. In particular, the suffering which would be taken on by Israel's representative, the Messiah. When Luke says that Jesus interpreted to them all the things about himself throughout the Bible, he doesn't mean that Jesus collected a few or even a few dozen isolated texts or verses chosen at random. He means that the whole story of the Old Testament pointed forward to a fulfillment which could only be found within God's anointed Messiah when he took the suffering of Israel and hence the world's suffering on himself and he died under that weight and he rose again at the beginning of God's new creation and God's new people, that is what had to happen. In fact, it's interesting. There's nothing in these narratives of the Gospels that really talk about our personal relationship with Jesus. In other words, the focus at this point, that will be developed later in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul in the epistles. But the focus here is that the resurrection was the verification and vindication of what God had been doing from the beginning. Verse 28, Now they drew near to the village where they were going, and he indicated that he would have have gone farther, but they can... 
but they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. They had become enamored with the teaching of Jesus. They constrained him. They begged him to stay. You can't go now. It's all starting to make sense. Verse 30. Now it came to pass as he sat at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. It's really an amazing verse of Scripture. Death itself has been defeated. God's new creation, now brimming with life and joy and new possibility, has burst upon the world of decay and sorrow. But the word by itself was not enough. Even after Jesus had explained everything about himself and the Scriptures, they still didn't recognize him. That occurs when he breaks bread with them. So, too, we are invited to know Jesus at the breaking of bread. The way Luke has described the simple mealtime takes our minds back to the upper room and the many other meals that Jesus had shared with his followers. The theology of the table is profound and pervasive through Scripture. Luke also intends that his readers should see that this simple meal pointing forward to the breaking of bread which quickly becomes the central symbolic action of Jesus' people. Though Jesus was no longer physically present, they were to see him living with them in and through the meal. When we eat this meal, we remember him. When Jesus, when the scriptures are taught and the bread is broken, then Jesus can be known. Verse 32, and they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? In verse 32, the two disciples, as they discuss it between themselves, realize that the whole time they were talking to Jesus, they had a sense that something weird was going on. This, this isn't normal. Let me just conclude with a comment from N.T. Wright on this passage. It is both wonderful, unique, excuse me, it is both a wonderful, unique, spellbinding tale and also a model, and Luke surely knew this, for a great deal of what being a Christian from that day to this is all about. The slow, sad dismay at the failure of human hopes the turning to someone who might or might not help, the discovery that in Scripture, all unexpected, there lay the keys which might unlock the central mysteries and enable us to find the truth, the sudden realization of Jesus himself present with us, warming our hearts with his truth, showing us himself as as bread is broken. This describes the experience of innumerable Christians and indeed goes quite a long way to explaining what it is about Christianity that grasps us and holds us in the face 
of so much that is wrong with the world, with the church, and with ourselves. Amen. Let's pray. Deal bountifully with your servants, Lord, that we may live and keep your word. Open our eyes that we may see wondrous things from your law. We are strangers in the earth. Do not hide your commandments from us. Indeed, Lord, your word was clear, but our eyes were dark. We had not understanding until you came alongside us, until you opened up the scriptures to us, until we came to your table. Feed us now, O Lord, that we might live. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke has told us the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus in such a way as to help us uh, live in that story ourselves. We, too, are invited to listen to the exposition of the Bible, to have our hearts burn within us as fresh truth comes from the old pages and sets us on fire. Some of you have expressed your own excitement over some of the recent messages and and services we've had, both with Advent as well as uh, Easter, and the fresh ways God has worked in your lives and hearts. In this passage, Luke emphasizes that the church all too easily forgets, that the careful study of the Bible is meant to bring us together, head and heart, understanding and, and excitement go together. Only when we see the Old Testament as reaching its natural climax in Jesus will we have understood it. Likewise, we will only understand Jesus himself when we see him as the one to whom Scripture points, not simply in isolated text, but in the entire flow of the story. And when we grasp this, the way we know we've grasped it is that we will find our hearts burning within us. This is exciting. This is amazing. This is God, this is not something that just happened in my life, not just something that happened a few years ago when I asked Jesus into my heart. This has been happening from really the moment after the fall and God when God promised redemption, he began to unfold his plan. This is the flow of all of human history. This is what life means. This is it. The world thinks we're crazy. They think we've lost our minds. They think we're to be pitied. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are. But if he rose from the dead, they are to be pitied. Jesus would accomplish this new exodus for God's people. The real slave master keeping the human race is bondage, that into bondage is death. Earthly tyrants borrow power from death to boost their rule. That's why crucifixion was such a powerful symbol of Roman authority. Victory over the cross, over the cross and death robs the powers of their main threat. Sin, which means humans rebelling against God and so conspiring with death, to deface God's creation is likewise defeated. Jesus has led God's new people out of slavery. 
He's the new Moses. And now invites them to accompany him on the new journey to the promised land. The road to Emmaus is just the beginning. Hearing Jesus' voice in Scripture and knowing him in the breaking of bread is the new way. Come to the new world. In two weeks, I'll be out this next week, but in two weeks, we're going to see what comes next. The road from Emmaus to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. O Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Fill us with bold and courageous faith that we might trust you and move. Grant us to see that our earthly hope is in the gospel of Christ, that we might act now to build and advance your kingdom. Enable us to obey your call, that we might actively evangelize the nations and take on the mission that you've called us to. And so we pledge to preach the word, to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, indeed to teach men and nations all things whatsoever you have commanded. Give us courage and boldness to speak the truth in love. And now as we begin this new week, may we do so with fresh commitment to our Lord and Savior. Bless now our rest, our feast, and our ongoing communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Amen.